So a green consumer is somebody who maybe buys organic food, recycles their garbage, drives a Prius. All the things we know about reducing your footprint. And that's all fine and good to do, but it can't grow to the scale needed to solve the climate change problem. It's important for ethical alignment for some people, but it won't fix the problem. A green citizen is somebody who says, I'm going to understand how these decisions are made, the big decisions, like what powers America, what heats the buildings, what moves our vehicles. And I'm going to find the pinch point, the decision maker, and I'm going to spend some time pushing on a button that really matters. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Hal Harvey. Hal is the CEO of Energy Innovation, a San Francisco-based energy and environmental policy firm. From 1991 to 2002, Hal served as founder and CEO of the Energy Foundation, a philanthropy supporting policy solutions that advance renewable energy and energy efficiency. He then helped establish Energy Foundation China, the European Climate Foundation, and the Indian Sustainable Energy Foundation. From 2002 to 2008, he served as Environmental Program Director at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Hal has served on energy panels appointed by Presidents Bush and Clinton. His new book is co-written with Justin Gillis and called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. Hal, welcome to the podcast. I've really appreciated the opportunity to work with you on climate policy, particularly as it relates to China. And my wife, Wendy, and I are proud to have been early supporters of energy innovation. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. But let's start at the beginning. You come from an Aspen family, born and raised in Aspen, Colorado. Tell us about your upbringing and how it shaped your early interests. Well, uh, Hank, Aspen was a small town, 3,000 people when I was a kid with dirt streets. And my mother is the most avid environmental leader I've ever met. (laughs) So she's thought about hiking up every valley, climbing every peak, Uh, along with two friends in the Aspen area. And over a period of 40 years, they wrote up citizen proposals for wilderness designation and got each of them passed by Congress. So we had an outdoors upbringing. (laughs) Some people call us feral kids. There were six of us. Wow. I know your mother is really quite well known in Aspen for her early work with the environment. So early in your career, you showed a knack for innovation in the energy space designing solar homes, and even building an electric car for your commute. What did some of these projects teach you about experimentation and innovation? So I always loved tinkering with things. Um, When I was 12 years old, I got a Volkswagen with a burnout engine for free. And I um, took it apart and rebuilt the engine and put it back together. So I was the only 12-year-old kid with a car. And then I did it three more times and turned one of them into a dune buggy. So I had four cars before I turned 16. Every one of them I I got for free and rebuilt. I love the process. I love seeing how things work. But what did I learn about innovation? The first thing is it's actually a good idea to get your hands dirty. You have to understand systems before you can change them. And there's different ways. There's metaphorical ways to get your hands dirty, but you have to dig in. 
A superficial approach to problems won't do the trick. The second thing I learned is that there are tricks to the trade. And tricks is the wrong word. It's not like you're doing anything sneaky or tricky. It's a set of skills that emerge over time. And for me, the most important one was learning how to see patterns in things. If you look at a broken mechanical device, you can begin to understand over time very quickly what's wrong and how to fix it. So you can fix things that you don't have a manual for, you don't know anything about by assessing how the dynamics of that system works. And it turns out that's an important skill for policymaking, for investing, for a number of other realms, just finding which, which variables cause the most change, sensitivity analysis, I guess. One of the things I really appreciated about working with you, you always had a theory of the case, you prioritized, you had very, very clear objectives, and then you figured out step-by-step step how to get there what were the milestones along the way, et cetera. So you now run an energy and environmental policy firm called Energy Innovation. So talk a bit about what you're working on, your goals, and uh, what you're doing to achieve them. So one of the things that always bothered me about the energy field and indeed the climate field is it was never ordered by impact or scale. Um, everybody has their favorite technology or their favorite policy. And in fact, a lot of this is susceptible to quantitative analysis. Do the math. So if you begin to do the math, you discover things like electric utility regulations are supremely important. And yet most people don't know about them, don't think about them. Recycling your garbage, nice thing to do, important, some level. There's not a lot of zeros behind it. So, and then even when you land on the right idea, for example, the German renewable energy commitments, if you design the policy wrong, it's either hideously expensive or ineffective or sometimes both. So what we did at Energy Innovation was set out to, we call it policy design for policy makers, work with them on finding the right solution to an energy problem, especially climate change, but then also developing a policy that's going to make a huge difference, that's dynamic, that takes advantage of innovation of capitalism, but at the same time protects the commons. So we do policy design for policymakers, and it uh, turns out there's a big demand for it. <laughs> we can barely keep up, but uh, that's the whole point. Yes. So, Hal, I'd like to ask you to expound a bit on one thing, because you and I have talked a lot about regulation of electric utilities and you know how dysfunctional this is and just really leads to outcomes that, that really make no sense. Yeah. If you design the policy with good intentions, but bad design, it's still bad policy. So um, first thing to do is back when I said do the math, 40% of all the carbon in the US economy goes through monopoly pipes and wires. And that's your natural gas pipelines and your electricity wires. Since those are physical monopolies, they have to have a regulation point because otherwise there would be monopolistic gouging. So every state has a public utilities commission whose job it is to figure out how much to spend on what when you write a check for your utility bill every month, they're the ones that decide whether that lands on a wind turbine or a coal-fired power plant or, or something else entirely. So all of a sudden you realize these public utility commissioners have all this power. But who are they? Where do they come from? What are they motivated by? Most of them are appointed by the local governor. Uh, there are about 200 of them in the whole country. If you wanna go after that 40% of the carbon in the economy, and we better, then you have to look at the math of those 200 people. And what I say is, well, there's 30 big states, 20 little states, approximately. 
So you're now down to 150 individuals. You don't need to win every vote by a five to zero margin. You could win on a three to two margin. So you're now down to 90 people who control close to half the carbon in the U.S. economy. So this is the beginnings of wisdom is decision maker math. And then what do you do with it? Well, you ask if they're either required or incented to transform to a low carbon economy and to do so cost effectively. So the electric utilities, you have to stipulate reliable, affordable, and clean. You have to optimize against all three of those goals at the same time. And if you get it right, it's magic because you have this multi-billion dollar machine with trucks in every city and town in America doing the decarbonization job for you. But if you do it wrong, you get Texas style blackouts, freeze outs, shortages, as they're seeing in Europe. So it's, it's, it's a bit tricky, but by God, it's powerful when you do it well. And what, what I remember, Hal, is even if we weren't focused on climate and reducing emissions, how dysfunctional this is, because you will see in, in, in certain states, the commissioners keeping inefficient plants open, right? And uh, rather than closing them or building new plants that aren't needed because they've got a bigger rate base then on which that they can charge fees. It's really very, it's been very, very dysfunctional for a long period of time. So I'm glad you're focused on it. So now let's talk about your new book, The Big Fix, which offers a wide ranging and practical guide for how we can make a difference in dealing with climate change. First, what was your motivation for the book? And describe what you and your author, Justin Gillis, were trying to achieve. Well, the whole topic of climate change can freeze people up because it's complex. First of all, you have this wall of problems facing you. You've got sea level rise, ocean acidification, forest fires, hurricanes, and so forth, crop failure, extreme heat, extreme drought. So that's a lot of stuff to deal with. <laughs> and then there's this long list of potential solutions, geothermal, solar, wind, nuclear, clean coal, natural gas, and so forth. If you try to square up this huge list of resources against this huge list of problems without any decision tool, you just fall apart. Most people who are in earnest about climate change don't land on an effective strategy. And if you dissipate that social earnestness, that social commitment with bad ideas or the wrong technology, uh, you've actually done more harm than good. So what we try to do with the book is argue that there's a small number of things that make a huge difference Conversely, there's a large number of things that make little difference at all. And for each of those things that make a huge difference, there's either one or two or sometimes four policies that drive the change. It's, it's not an endless list. This is a manageable set of problems. Um, you need discipline. You need to not walk in with preconditions, but you can fix this issue if you do it right. So we wanted to write a compelling book that explained to people what can they do to solve the climate problem. I'm super happy with my co-author, Justin Gillis. He was chief science and uh, climate author for the New York Times for a decade. And the man is a reporter and he goes and tells stories, he collects them. So I can write about the economics of wind power and the policies that drive wind power. But he talks to the individuals who built the first windmills in, uh, in Colorado and what they ran into, how they overcome different obstacles. What we try to do is create a very readable book and it's gotten great reviews, but one that uh, actually takes you on a journey of how to solve a big, ugly set of problems. And I tell you, it takes good stories to draw readers in. So one of the big themes of the book 
is how we need to transition from green consumers to green citizens. Tell our listeners what you mean by that. So a green consumer is somebody who maybe buys organic food, recycles their garbage, drives a Prius, all the things we know about reducing your footprint. And that's all fine and good to do, um, but it can't grow to the scale needed to solve the climate change problem. It's important for ethical alignment for some people, but it won't fix the problem. A green citizen is somebody who says, I'm going to understand how these decisions are made, the big decisions, like what powers America, what heats the buildings, what moves our vehicles. And I'm going to find the pinch point, the decision maker, and I'm going to spend some time pushing on a button that really matters. I'm going to spend some time getting to know the decision maker and working with them to actually do something. So that's the difference between a green consumer, buying good green stuff, and a green citizen, which is making a political demand that we clean up our act. So now let's get into to a story. So there's a great uh, section in your book where you talk about how renewable energies like wind became so cheap. Tell us that story. When we look at the dramatic declines in the cost of renewables over the last decade or so, what are the biggest takeaways? Well, the first one is cost reduction driven by volume purchases is the closest thing to magic we have in the energy space. And people are used to this in other realms, but what about that same innovation driving prices down and performance up in the energy field? It turns out that many elements of the energy economy, not all of them, but most of them, are susceptible to this behavior, where as you build more and sell more, the price gets lower and lower. It's called a learning curve. And it's uh, amazing what can happen. In the last 10 years, solar prices have dropped 90%. Wind prices have dropped 40%. Offshore wind is going down soon. Light emitting dials have dropped in price by 95%. Electric vehicles, car batteries are on a very fast learning curve. So if you have a technology that's good for the environment, but also cheaper than the competition, you've got magic. Now the price drops are not automatic. They're a combination of resource efficiency, innovation, manufacturing economies of scale, better business models, but they're amazingly consistent. And once you've looked at any technology long enough, like for example, wind turbines, seeing how prices go down, you begin to have hope for the future. It's the cheapest form of electricity on planet Earth is now a solar panel. And the second cheapest is, is a wind turbine. So now let's look at something that's making the challenge for this transition a bit more difficult. So we, we've got this ongoing energy crisis. And what can be done in the short term to keep us from losing too much ground in the fight against climate change while we're going through this pretty significant energy crisis. Let me go back a little bit first. This is now the 50th anniversary of the first Arab oil embargo in 1973. We've been in and out of energy crises ever since. We had another oil embargo in 1978, which led to this period of stagflation. As, as you know better than any human alive, Hank, I think stagflation, stagnation plus inflation is one of the hardest economic problems to resolve or hardest energy and economic problems to, to deal with. We have let our appetites distort our foreign policy to a horrendous degree. We spend, uh, when I was a kid, $50 billion per year on military forces aimed at the Middle East. Now it's in the $200 billion range. We've let our appetite for oil finance terrorists. Um, we've paid for both sides of the war on terror. 
And today, we're paying for both sides of the war in Ukraine through oil delivered by Mr. Putin and through uh, weaponry delivered by the US military. So we've had 50 years of episodic energy crises and we've never taken seriously what to do about them. The biggest one of all, by far, of course, is climate change where we're, we're wrecking the earth. And we're doing so at a dramatic pace. So to the specifics of your question, there is an energy shortage, especially in Europe and in Asia right now. And it's driven by Putin putting, turning down the screws and the Saudis doing the same thing on the taps, turning down the taps. And we are not set up for dealing with the shortage of oil or natural gas. And yet we have shortages of oil or natural gas. So it creates a tenuous social circumstance where governments are gonna be kicked out, it just happened in Italy. So what to do about it? The wrong answer is to double down on fossil fuels. If we can't at some point after half a century of this nonsense, understand the pattern that overdependence on fossil fuels is damaging. And I haven't even mentioned conventional air pollution or coal ash disposal or mercury and fluorescent lights or, or conventional pollutants. If, if we're going to pursue conventional energy policy, we're gonna pay that price again and again. We're gonna keep funding people who don't like America. So what do you do? The first thing you do is you flood the zone with clean energy technology. Energy prices follow a nonlinear price curve where when, when total demand approaches total supply, the price goes crazy. And everybody pays for all their energy that last price. But if you can back down demand by 5% or 10%, you can collapse the price. It's extremely sensitive at the edge of that curve there. And the way you do that is with energy efficiency to be sure, but also a lot of solar and a lot of wind so that there isn't a supply constraint that's right on the edge. That's number one. Number And you can do that immediately and you should do it immediately. You can build a solar farm in, inside a month or two months much, much faster than deploying natural gas or oil or coal. Uh, the fact that we're not doing this at scale is astonishing and embarrassing. The Chinese are, but the Americans and the Europeans are moving too slow. Then you have to take the longer view and you have to say, what does it take to build a grid that's zero carbon? And there's great news out there. It is now cheaper to pay for all in costs, capital plus operating plus fuel of renewable energy, for less money than just the marginal operating costs of coal. And so this plus good uh, activist work has led to a dramatic shutdown of coal-fired power plants in America. There's just a small number left and they're probably all going away by 2030. That's just seven years from now. But you have to be ahead of the curve in deployment of renewable energy, wind and solar especially. That's the thing we need to finally do is quit our addiction to fossil fuels and it's cheaper to do that. I say it now, it's cheaper to save the world than to ruin it. Let me offer one more bright spot, if I may. Offshore wind. So the winds offshore blow almost twice as many hours per year as the winds onshore, and they blow much faster. So they're steadier and they're faster. And offshore, you can build the turbine as big as you want. And big turbines catch a lot more energy, not a little, but a lot more energy than smaller turbines. You can build them as big as you want because you put the factory right at the docks. You don't have to move those. Those blades now are longer than a football field, one blade is longer than a football field. The hub of these things is bigger than a house. And the total size of them are like the Eiffel Tower for one turbine. So the price has been dropping, the contracts have been going up. So that price curve that I talked about earlier is underway with offshore wind. And the last bit is they've learned how to float these things instead of anchoring them to the bottom. And that's super important because the California coast drops away really rapidly. And so it's too deep to anchor at the bottom. But if you float these things, you don't care how deep it is. So we should have an offshore wind boom and we're having an offshore wind boom. 
it's a remarkably stable, uh, cost-effective technology for decarbonizing the grid. And there's no doubt, I think, that this Russia-Ukraine war has been a wake-up call. And so yes. I think there's going to be a lot of work on renewables. But there certainly is a, a setback in the short term. Now, let's talk about something that took place after your book went to press. The Biden administration passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I call it the climate bill because it's the most significant climate bill our country has ever passed. And how do you assess the bill? What elements of the climate bill that you think are least appreciated? And what do you think is most impactful in that bill? Well, Hank, I agree with you completely. It's a terrific uh, achievement and one that not many people thought at the end of the day was actually going to happen, but it did. The most important aspects of the bill are the tax credits for uh, wind power, solar power, and other clean energy technologies, uh, because they make it cheaper to provide clean energy. And so that will encourage new business models. It'll increase the volume of deployments by a lot. So we will start having clean energy at really incredible scale. The second thing that it does that's really impressive is it helps with getting batteries built. Batteries are fantastic in terms of balancing the grid, but especially in terms of moving cars around. The electric vehicle revolution well underway. But battery chemistry is very tough. It requires lithium, other rare earth metals. And so this bill encourages and helps finance the transition to not just the solar and wind, but also the advanced batteries. And that's exactly what we need. I'm really happy with this bill. It doesn't have everything I would like or that you might like, but it's a huge step forward. And one of the things I like is some of the technologies we're going to need, which aren't commercially viable now, right? Some of the yes. more difficult ones when you're looking at, at greening industrials, carbon capture sequestration, uh, hydrogen, and so on. There's some subsidies for that to move that along because this clean energy transition is going to take decades. And uh, we need to get working on some of those things now, too. So, again, there's a lot to like there, and it's a big step forward. So, now, Hal. We're approaching another important UN climate conference next month in Egypt, the COP27. What are the most important things that you think should be on that agenda? That's a great question. These are uh, these UN conferences with uh, 180 nations or so show up. The negotiations themselves are painful, slow, and please nobody in the end. <laughs> that doesn't mean these things are useless by any means. What's good about this so-called COP meeting, which stands for Council of Parties, is that they require countries to bring tougher and tougher plans every five years, more and more ambitious plans, I should say, every five years. Uh, so last year was the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreements. The current COP meeting is going to focus on Africa, especially, uh, and on adaptation. There are horrific math and sociological studies that say there could be over 200 million refugees in Africa by 2035 or 2040. So this COP is set up to deal with some very tough issues. What I think we should focus on is what I would call the enabling conditions for clean energy. So there's been a debate for years where the rich countries promised $100 billion per year to help the transition to poor countries to get onto clean energy. And that $100 billion never materialized. It came up to 30s or 40s some years, but it never got to 100. Because of the price drops, which I mentioned earlier, it is now the wrong thing to argue about. 
private sector will deploy massive amounts of clean energy if the enabling conditions are set right. And what do I mean by enabling conditions? Can you site your solar or your wind? Can you get permits to build your solar or your wind? Do you have an off-taker agreement? That means if somebody set up to buy your electricity, somebody who's credit worthy, can you get construction permits? Can you hook up to the grid itself? These are all things that can be solved with the stroke of a pen. But when you do, that enables private sector capital. It's de-risking. And since clean energy is all capital, de-risking is more or less magic. Yes, Al, you and I see it the same way. I get very frustrated. These UN get-togethers on climate are necessary, but far from sufficient. And they can be misleading because they congratulate themselves on setting voluntary targets that we're not on the path to meet. And you and I both agree that there's a lot of capital in the private sector available to come in. Governments don't have the money. They're not going to make it available. The private sector capital is not going to come in on a concessionary basis. So you need to create the conditions, right? You need to make the policy decisions. And that's what we see. I see the work that I'm doing with so many companies. I see a lot of innovation and I see ambition, but I think it's going to meet a roadblock here unless we start seeing government step up and create the enabling conditions that it takes to get something done. And I don't think it's quite as easy as you do with a stroke of a pen, because a lot of times the reason those strokes of a pen aren't being done is because there's entrenched interests, right? Like we have with utility commissions or elsewhere, there are entrenched interests. This can be done without a lot of cost. Doesn't take cost, it just takes political will. But I think more people need to speak out, need to speak out on what's not being done here, rather than just all applauding themselves on setting these targets. So we see that the same way. So let's go to another one. So China. Al, your work on China goes back many years to your days at the Energy Foundation and all the work you did with that country and with the NDRC in China on on climate markets, you know, and putting a price on carbon and all the work you did on energy efficiency there. So today, the U.S.-China relationship is as fraught as I've ever seen it. And climate is one area that the two governments had designated to work together on. So it's a It's a relatively bright spot in a very dark relationship right now. But even there, we've got problems because we're competitors, and particularly when you get into competing in some of the advanced energy sectors and batteries and so on. So China is ground zero for climate change and responsible for nearly 30% of global carbon emissions. And both countries have a shared interest in preventing the worst climate outcomes so, Al, how do you see the path forward here? The truth with climate change is we either all win together or we all lose together. China and the U.S. are the largest and the second largest, respectively, carbon emitters in the world. Historically, it's, it's the U.S., but today it's China. So we can't get mad at China and pull out of conversations over climate change and think we accomplished anything. We didn't do that. The Chinese pulled out this time. Uh, I don't mean to misappropriate that. In other words, climate change is not susceptible, should not be susceptible to political bickering because we either win together, we lose together. What do we do about it now? The U.S.-Chinese relations are terrible, as bad as I've seen them uh, in decades. And climate change is being used as a bargaining chip. 
And climate change is, I agree with you, is the best deal we got going right now with China. It's just not near good enough. However, there's a lot of hope. So China has adopted incredibly ambitious clean energy goals, and they're pursuing them with vigor. They put in as much solar in the last year as the rest of the world has done in all of history. Uh, they're putting in dramatic amounts of wind power, uh, and they're starting to get much more serious about energy efficiency. So the first thing that has to be said is progress is underway in both countries, even though we're not collaborating the way we should. The second thing is I always think of climate change conversations as technical exchanges, not political exchanges. I think it's really important to emphasize that. How do you, how do you build an all-electric bus fleet for a large city? What does it cost? What are the benefits? What's the learning curve? What's, what are the health benefits and so forth? We don't have to have a political battle over questions like that. We just should have people not breathing fouled air and getting asthma as a consequence. So I think the way to restart the conversation is to choose a dozen areas like methane leaks or decarbonizing the grid or accelerating the electric vehicle transition and exchanging best practices with the Chinese, helping them do it and helping us. It's straightforward, it's technical assistance, there's no state secrets lost, there's no IP lost. It's, it's, it just gets things going. And then once we've done that, we can start challenging each other for more ambition. And we can help and they, we can help them and they can help us. I'll, I'll just give one example. There's a lot of methane leaking from cold coal mines and coal steams in China. Methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. The Chinese have pledged to cut this significantly and that has a huge and rapid impact on greenhouse gas emissions. But they don't quite know how to do it. And in fact, we don't know quite how to do it. Our control of methane is a plumbing problem because it happens in the oil field. Theirs is more of a geological problem. Completely different set of skills required, different knowledge. Let's do that together. Let's let's put together a team, a bilateral team of scientists and go, go work on it. So there's a lot of goodwill that's just been suppressed recently. And I think it'll come back in force in the coming uh, months. Well, what you and I both saw there, you can do a lot at the subnational level. You can do a lot with not-for-profits like the Energy Foundation, mayors getting together and exchanging best practices, engineers talking about how to solve problems. And the Chinese are really quite pragmatic in that way. But as I said, right now, we're going to have to start with a few things that are discrete and where we got a common interest in and build some positive momentum. So Hal, this has been terrific, but I'd like to close with your advice to our younger listeners. What advice do you give students who are navigating their lives and their careers in today's rapidly changing world? That's a great question, Hank. I would say two things. The first is to develop and tune up your own set of skills. Get decent practice at quantitative analysis. Learn how to write a brilliant paragraph. Learn how to be organized. Check your attitude as well. Are you up for it? Nowadays, people need a portfolio of skills, uh, and they need to understand that they can use the same set of skills in different jobs down the road. The other, though, the second point is live a life imbued with purpose. If you have a purpose in your life, not just making money and doing the day-to-day -day work and getting promoted, but a real purpose, it might be music. It might be climate change. It might be biodiversity. It might be women's health. If you have purpose in your life, even the tough, tough problems will nourish you, will allow you to grow. Uh, so portfolio of skills plus purpose. Al, great advice. And your life is a prime example of someone 
who has got a real purpose. And you've given our listeners a lot to think about today. So thank you very much. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.